On the record. On News Talk. Do you remember uh, years ago when people found mobile phones started coming out first and used to be able to make ringtones? But they, they weren't like this. They were just like the three dial ringtones. But people somehow worked out, you know, that, that matched the match of the day, the Sunday game <laughs> ringtone. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. Uh, we are talking about the GAA. We're talking about uh, 100 years ago when 1,800 GAA matches were played. Think of the fixtures congestion we have at the moment. Imagine this. 1,800. Think of the headache for Paddy Power and, and Boy Sports. <laughs> all in one day. All beginning at the exact same time. It was called Gaelic Sunday. It, it's a remarkable story. Donald Fallon of Hidden Histories of the Community Blog uh, is with me in studio to talk about it. Uh, this is our second sporting story. In, in a couple of weeks. In, it is. In, it in is. Short time. I, I, I thought about doing something on royal weddings but I think we've all heard enough uh, about that. I was reminded yesterday of the words of Tom Paine, the great English Republican, and he said that a hereditary monarch is every bit as ridiculous as a hereditary mathematician. So I thought the public, <laughs> maybe we get away from royal weddings and we'll go to the, the more familiar territory of sport with this slot. And we did look a few weeks ago at uh, the kind of muted attempts to ban horse racing in Ireland during the revolutionary period. And listeners might remember that failed and it failed in the most spectacular mm. styles. And I think the reason they couldn't ban horse racing in Ireland during the revolution was it's such a broad church. You know, horse racing appeals to everyone of all faiths and viewpoints. Perhaps the same thing couldn't be said of Gaelic games. And this is a great story, the defiance of Gaelic Sunday. And it's kind of fallen through the cracks of history. It's a day when hurley sticks and not guns did the talking. And the real heroes of this story, as we'll learn later on, are camogie players uh, who took up you know, the, the greatest act of defiance that day, playing on the streets of inner city Dublin when Croke Park was locked to prevent them from entering it. Yeah, we're talking about 100 years ago, so revolutionary Ireland. And the GEA played its part in, in that it, revolution. It did, but you know, we should avoid kind of old cliches that if you played soccer or rugby, you're a unionist. And if you played Gaelic, you're a nationalist. Sport isn't like that. You know, most people play sports because they just like the sports and in the case of the GAA that is a very powerful old cliche isn't it that the GAA marched into the revolution like the volunteers uh, in reality life is more complex you know and there's been a lot of research done in recent years that talks about how many great GAA players actually fought in World War One. brilliant Wexford player called James Rossiter he wrote That's home from the front name, all right. and he said, he said I'm, I'm more nervous before playing an All-Ireland final than attacking the Germans on the front <laughs> and it wasn't just him there were, there were others too uh, Ross O'Carroll has researched this a lot he's found teams in Belfast St. Peter's and Belfast, uh, who had to fold basically because they lost so many men in World War One. Another Belfast club called O'Neill Crowley's went out of business uh, by 1917 because seven of their members were dead. So, you know, it's not always as straightforward as GAA equals nationalist, rugby equals unionist. It, sports is always more complex than that. What about that great other cliche that Hill 16 <sighs> is so named because it's built with yeah, the rubble of the, the city GPO. that fought an empire. You always see the flags on the hill and I remember hearing that it was the rubble of the GPO. Yeah. There was a terrace there before and what they called it was actually Hill 60 after a battle at Gallipoli where no Irish soldiers were, were wiped out. So Hill 16 was Hill 60 and it was named for a, a British Gallipoli. Army, A British Army military victory. Yeah, I mean, wow. a lot of Dubliners now are probably throwing radios out of windows here in this, but I swear it's they true. They won't put that in the Haypenny <laughs> Bridge on a banner. <laughs> no, no, they wouldn't, they wouldn't. <laughs> and it was only in the 1930s that nationalists in the GAA began saying, 
you know, we can't have air terrorists named after a battle in World War One. And Hill 16 was brought forward to, to prominence. So the GAA revisionist history, revisionism from the nationalists for once. It's 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 a complex thing. The GAA, like any organisation, hundreds of thousands of people, is a complex thing. Fairly nationalist founders, though. Absolutely. I mean, Archbishop Croke, the man who founded the GAA, he, he he didn't hold back. He had this great line. He said, "We are daily importing from England not only her manufactured goods, but we cannot help doing since she's nearly strangled her own manufacturing appliances, but her fashions." her accents, her vicious literature, her music, her dances and her manifold mannerisms, her games and her pastimes to the utter discredit of her own grand national sports and to the sore humiliation of every genuine son and daughter of the old land. I love that. Tell us how you really feel, Archbishop <laughs> Croke. But, you know, not everyone had the same radicalism in their bones as Croke did. And as I said, I, w- I, would, I think this is still true. I would maintain most people get involved in sports because they like playing the sport. The GA, though, say, in terms of the political relevance of it like it was criminalised was it not I, I would argue that the people that make the GAA a radical nationalist machine during the revolutionary period which it does become are the British themselves and not for the first time in Irish history it's mismanagement really of, of Ireland by Britain that does this they don't trust the GAA they don't really understand it and I suppose the attempt to criminalise the body backfired in the most spectacular style and 1918 is a bad year for Britain and Ireland it's a year that they, they start losing the population they try to bring in conscription which is defeated by a mass movement of millions of people. We had the first general strike in Western Europe in this country in April 1918, which stopped conscription stone dead. And it wasn't a normal strike because the priests supported it, the employers supported it, and the Irish independents supported it. And I, don't think been, <laughs> I don't think there's been a strike since that the Irish independents supported it. So, so they're, they're panicking. By 1918, I think you could describe 1918 as a series of unfortunate events. The British just get one thing wrong after the next. They boycott, or they, they boycott, they prescribe a number of organisations, uh, including Sinn Féin, the political party, which already had a couple of MPs. So imagine outlawing a party that has MPs in Westminster. The Gaelic League, an Irish language movement, the volunteers all banned. And they don't ban the GAA as such, but they do is they ban, quote, all public rallies and public gatherings. And it's broad enough that it includes GAA matches. So it was made clear to the organisation, the GAA were basically told, you can play games all you want, but you have to apply for a permit to do it. Uh, the the GA then, if the, the, you needed this permit to, to to go and run games, I suppose without it, I assume the authorities, the RIC at the time, mm. had something to say about that. Yeah, well, GAA headquarters come out and they say, look, if you ask for one, you're out. 22nd of July, the order comes from HQ, Krug Park. It says, under no circumstances must the permit be applied for. Any individual or club infringing on the foregoing order becomes automatically and indefinitely suspended. In other words, you're out of the GAA for good. Uh, if you ask for one of these permits. And the Royal Irish Constabulary take their job seriously. The last few weeks of July 1918, they are shutting down games and people are getting arrested. So the GAA's response is, right, if we put everyone on the field to play at once, what are they going to do about that? And the 4th of August becomes known as Gaelic Sunday and there's this massive hype towards this moment of defiance. Uh, So do the RIC then... Intervene on Gaelic Sunday. There's great. The, the, the police very wisely take a step back. There's a great newspaper report that says there were Royal Irish Constabulary men at a game in Athlone, but they were there as paying spectators. So they just wanted to watch a match. <laughs> they weren't there to shut it down. In some places, the RIC tried to stop games, but they weren't able to. And there was a beautifully uh, symbolic moment in, in a Belfast prison. You know, behind the walls of a prison, there's a symbolic game played among prisoners. But it's it's women in Dublin who put on the best show of resistance that day on, on the streets right beside Croke Park. Yeah, it's going to ask you about what happened down at HQ as they say you have to I mean if you're going to ban Gaelic games the least you can do is keep Croke Park closed that's where the media gather that's the, mm. that's the, 
the beast of the GAA. So the Croke Park is locked. The police are outside. The Dublin Metropolitan Police making sure no game can happen. And what you see is great. The, a game of camogie is played right outside Croke Park. And the Camogie Central Council, even today, I think, there's a, they're, they're affiliated to the GAA, but they're their own machine. Uh, they describe the ban as a petty piece of the absolute tyranny exercised over the whole country right now. So you have these women playing camogie on the streets under the watchful eye of Dublin Metropolitan Policemen and more importantly a very enthusiastic large crowd of, of supporters. Probably the most watched camogie game the country had seen up to that point. So you've got this huge big event then Gaelic Sunday all around the country including right outside Croke Park. It obviously was huge news here. How was it received in the UK? I think one effect it, it must have had is when you think about the, the English are like us in some ways. They're, they're sports mad people. They're, they like different sports, but they're sports mad people. And, uh, you know, a lot of the media in Britain picked up on how unfair it was to be banning sports. Uh, the Manchester Guardian, a great soccer city, they came out and they said, look, the banning Gaelic games is, quote, a stupid attempt to compound all forms of nationalist activity, legitimate and illegitimate, under one ban as seditious. So I think in cities like Manchester, Liverpool and Sheffield, where they love their own sports, hearing that people in Dublin and in, in Waterford and Limerick and everywhere else were being told they couldn't play Gaelic football or hurling or camogie, I think that resonated with them and there was new sympathies to be found once sport was interfered with. And we should remember the GAA did exist in Britain. I mean, you would have walked through a field in, in Salford, Manchester, Liverpool, and probably seen people playing Gaelic games. Wherever there was Irish immigrants, there were people playing Gaelic. And I imagine that you know, the English workers of the day, they probably watched it with the same kind of amusement that English people do nowadays when Sky Sports, Sky Sports put on a game. Uh, there hasn't been, as far as I know, a repeat of Gaelic Sunday. So what, like, what's the relevance of it? Yeah, the I, legacy? Mean, I think the reason it matters, right? the reason Gaelic Sunday matters, it's, it's the first time that the GAA itself instigates its role in, 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 in events. So the GA is caught up in other things. It's involved the rising. A lot of its players are involved in the rising. It's very much involved in Bloody Sunday. You know, Bloody Sunday, when they come into Croke Park, they bring it to them. But this is the day when the GA itself decides that it's playing a role. It's the, it's the protagonist on this day. And, you know, it's the day that the GA really nailed its flag to the mast. And I think it would be wonderful this year if we could mark it in some way. You know, the 4th of August, maybe the nearest Sunday to it. Let's do it again. Maybe we'll do it for charity. Get people out that don't normally play Gaelic or haven't played in years. And let's see if we can get 1,500 to 1,800 games all thrown in at the same time. Uh, and a reminder that while an awful lot has changed in Ireland over the last century, the love of the sport is still there. Yeah, the campaign starts here. I wonder if the GA are listening. Yeah, if, anyone, if, any, if anyone's involved. listening up in, up in HQ. Up in uh, HQ. Think, yeah. If we don't for charity, for anything, it'd be a huge event. It'd be brilliant, wouldn't it? Gaelic Sunday 2018. Because Gaelic this, Sunday. you know, this is the moment, I think. We, the rising involved 1,800 people. It was a minority affair. This is the moment that people in their tens of thousands, in their hundreds of thousands, made a stand. And it should be remembered. All right. Well, as I said, the campaign starts here. My thanks to Donald Fallon, author of the Come Here To Me blog, Book Volume 2, in the shops. Now, that's it for me today. Off the Ball is up next here on News Talk. My thanks to the production team, Roisin Davis and Stephen Jordan. Jodo Cardozo was on sound and now to play out today. Born on this day, the 20th of May in 1944. He died just in 2014. Joe Cocker. What to play has to be this cover. The Beatles songs brings back memories of uh, the wonder years. With a little help from my friends. On the record. On, the record. on News Talk. 